because if you are successful and you grow fast, there will be days, weeks, months when you drown. And knowing that there is empathy, forgiveness, understanding as a core value of the company allows folks to just be free and work and not worry about covering their asses, playing politics, or not taking chances. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I like to start these things off by reading your background to you. Right before we started recording, we were saying how you do not like being self-promotional. Most of my guests don't, so I have the privilege of doing the promotion for you. Tell me what I'm missing or fill in the blanks as I go here, okay? You got your degree in poli-sci from UW, University of Washington. You then went to law school at the University of Washington, became a partner at Cozen O'Connor, spent six years there. Then you went on to a company called Applied Discovery, spent about five and a half years there. And during that tenure, Nexus Lexus acquired you. You became the VP of sales and biz dev. Then you went on to become the VP of operations at Redfin. Right. It's kind of Redfin's first COO, yeah. COO. What year was that? I think that was 2005, 2006. So Redfin, okay. which I think is now publicly traded and in you know dozens of cities, it was just operating in Seattle at that point. So it's very, very early for Redfin at that point. And a hell of a time, like 2006 to 2008. And then you went on to be the VP of sales and business development at a company called Autonomy, which was acquired by HP near the end of your tenure there. Right. And you probably didn't want to go work for HP, and you became the SVP of global sales and marketing at K2, which is based in Seattle. Right. And you did that for about four years. And then you went on to be the CRO of Auth0. We sold the controlling stake of K2 to, uh, to Francisco Partners, and that kind of marked the end of my, my journey there. And then I bet at Auth0 for the last five years almost. So you started in November of 2014 at Auth0, and they did their Series A, you did your Series A in June of 2015. And so my understanding is that you joined in between the Seed and Series A. Uh, between the A and B, I think. I joined November 15. Okay. I think, and so I think we'd taken an A. Got it. Small A. It was, you know, call it Angel Plus, I would say. From Bessemer. That's right. And yep. when I joined, we were about 40 people and, you know, call it a half a million dollar a year in ARR, maybe 650, something like that. So it was still really early. Absolutely. Fast forward five years and you just raised your Series E from Salesforce and yeah. you reached over a billion dollar valuation. We did it. We hit unicorn status last May. And then I think our most recent round, which saw Salesforce Ventures coming in, valued us at just a hair under $2 billion, actually. Yeah. So it's been kind of five years from, you know, a half a million a year in ARR and a, I don't know, call it a 10 or $20 million valuation to to obviously north of $100 million in ARR at a $2 billion valuation. I've been doing early stage for 20 years, but nothing has been quite like this one. You know, I got to say, we're very spoiled by the quality of guests as well as companies that we get on this show. Yeah. And so you almost become numb to yeah. 
how insane that growth is. And I try and remind myself how incredible it is and how few people have actually experienced that growth. It just happens to be that every one of our guests has pretty much experienced that growth, which is why they are where they are. Yeah. But it is absolutely insane going that early. So all of that was in Seattle, correct? I've been in Seattle, yeah, but the company's all over. Probably 45% of our revenue comes from outside of the States. And roughly that same percentage of our employees are outside of the States as well, let alone just Seattle. So we're fairly global as tech companies go. And before I dive into anything, do you want to maybe spend 30 seconds telling the audience what Auth0 does? Oh, sure. So we're a platform for developers that are building applications to help them integrate identity components or identity technology into their applications. So, you know, they have customers that might want to use their corporate credentials to log into the application, or maybe if it's a consumer play, they want to use their Facebook login information or Google, and, and we abstract away that complexity so they don't have to deal with authentication and authorization protocols. There's a couple of things that I want to talk about. I want to make sure that we talk about kind of pressures and expectations of being the first time VP of sales. Clearly that doesn't bother you. You continue to do it and are very successful at doing so. Before I dive into any of that, I'd love to start from the top. I don't get many CROs who are former lawyers. Maybe if you could just tell your story there of like, how the hell did that happen? Yeah, it's a little weird because usually the characteristics that would make somebody a good lawyer is kind of like make you a good accountant, right? Like super <laughs> attention to detail, very patient. Typically you have salespeople that are highly patient and a lot of attention to detail. They're not going to be in sales very long because you kind of got to be able to stick and move and stick and move. And it was really just kind of random. I was practicing in Seattle and a good friend of mine from law school, she was also a partner at a firm and she had joined a startup that was building basically a collaboration platform for law firms. And this was back in 1999 when litigation was just all about paper. And the idea was to bring litigation more digital so folks could have you know virtual war rooms, things like that. And I just made partner at my law firm, things were going fine, but just realized that there was kind of a synergy there between what I knew well, legal, what I felt left out of, you know, software and, and digital, and that it was just a unique opportunity. And so I went over there, became the first salesperson. I was like employee eight, and I think a little combination of some good execution and a crap load of luck, candidly. And we, a couple of years later, were able to sell that to a big legal technology company. And I just kind of never went back to practicing. So, yeah. So you said at the time you had just made partner and that's a objectively cushy job. And I say cushy, like you worked your butt off. So it's not that cushy, but it's very comfortable. It's very set. You've worked really hard to get to this yeah, point. There's a lot of, you got a bundle of student loans, right? That's right. Yeah. And there's a ton of sweat equity that went into actually right. getting to that point. Yeah. Social and political capital that you've built within the firm. Finally, you get there and you get into like some, call it status or lane that you feel really comfortable in. Financially, it probably makes a lot of sense for you. How did you evaluate the opportunity cost of leaving something like that to go to an eight-person company and be the first sales rep? Yeah, I don't know if I do it now, right? Part of it was I was young and stupid, <laughs> let's, let's, let's be honest. But you know, more than that though, I think there was an itch that wasn't getting scratched practicing law. I mean, as much as you know, I enjoyed arguing in court and taking depositions and having an office on the 52nd floor and doing fancy lunches and things like that, I don't think I knew what the itch was until I left and went into technology and actually built something. Because as much as I thought I was very fancy and impressive when I was practicing law, and as much as my firm told me that I needed to stay, that I had a big future, 
the bottom line is when I left, they just put somebody else on my desk that could write down 0.1, 0.6, and fill out timesheets, right? And so, you know, it was only after going to an early stage company and watch that company grow 10, 20, 100, 200%, watch the people that came in that were promoted and built careers. And I realized that just from my personality, as much as I enjoy the law and talking and certainly arguing and those kinds of things, it's more important for me to be able to build something. And every Friday, I look back and go, yeah, we got a little bit better this week. And I wasn't yeah. getting that practicing. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny. I didn't expect this, but as I've had more and more of these interviews, my impression was that sales leaders are lifelong sales leaders and they're extremely focused and continue to double down on harnessing that craft. What I have realized is almost without exception, all of the guests that are on this show have an extremely broad diversity of experience yeah. and they apply those different experiences into being a good sales leader. And I think that's a really interesting characteristic that I didn't expect. I mean, even if you look at your background, you did biz dev, you did sales, law, COO, you're doing operations. Do you think that makes you just more effective today? And maybe a follow-up question to that, how? So if you're in a growth environment, high growth environment, whether you're at a startup or just a company that's experiencing high growth, I guess the benefit there is you're going to need others to grow, right? You know, if you're at a company that's growing 2% year over year, that's kind of it. Then you can go to your sales playbook. You make it about math and predictability. You run the same forecast calls on Monday. You run the same one-on-ones on Friday. I think that's fine. But if you're at a company that's growing 50, 80, 100% year over year, the degree that which you have either broader professional scope or maybe broader just intellectual curiosity, you're going to need that because you're going to need to understand the challenges that your colleagues in product or engineering or marketing or brand or whatever. You're going to have to understand their world or you're not going to be able to work with them particularly well. And it doesn't matter how great of a sales leader you are, you're not going to be able to drive that kind of growth if you're not rowing with those other functions. And so I would say being a where I've had success is I've, I think, been a startup executive first a high growth executive first, a sales executive second, meaning I've just had a little more perspective. And I think that's been a big help. Let's unpack that a little bit because I think it's really interesting. High growth first, sales executive second. I think a lot of the gig when you're growing that quickly is having the ability to scale with change. And that means you, but also your employees. And so the ground kind of shifts tectonically before you all the time. Sure. And you got to be able to just roll with it a little bit. And so I think having perspective across growth and change is sometimes even more important in making sure the troops are aligned and motivated and that kind of thing than necessarily the X's and O's of tackling that go-to-market. Is that kind of what you're saying? I don't mean to put words in your mouth. There's some of that. I think a lot of it's just perspective too. And so a purely sales perspective you know, might be for a salesperson that loses a deal because a prospect tells them they didn't have a certain capability or a certain feature. Mm -hmm. And if your only experience has been in sales, I think it's pretty easy to kind of fall into that and really focus on capabilities, things like that. If you've had some other roles, if you've been through high growth experiences, I think you can understand companies, you know, it's a zero sum game. We have a finite number of resources to create an offering. And if we try to touch every little piece, if we try to address every little segment, we're going to be sort of okay at everything, not particularly good at anything, and we're going to fail. 
And so if you have that perspective, I think you can help educate people on your team and you can build a more mature team and a more resilient team that has that perspective as well. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think the other thing that struck me and then we'll start transitioning out of kind of your background here is that, look, you gotta be good, but you also gotta know how to pick them. And I think you did both. You're going to eight, 10 person companies and you've had three plus acquisitions and now Auth0, which is where it's at with a $2 billion valuation when you joined, it was you know probably less than a hundred million. So are there any consistent themes or tells that you looked for? And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot with all these questions, but anything that you saw early on or consistent characteristics that you think were a guiding light for you in making those decisions? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I've looked for and they may not be the same for everyone, but you know, the first thing for me is, you know, early stage high growth is hard. And so I want to go somewhere, ideally, if I'm gonna have to build a team that's going to have to run through some walls, something that kind of philosophically people can get behind and get excited about. And that usually is a paradigm shift, right? So Redfin was a new take on real estate. Applied Discovery, the first startup I went to was a new way of conducting a diligence document review for litigation. In each case, it was some kind of seminal change. And it's not inventing electricity, it's not solving world hunger, but it is when you go to a company that is creating a new category or significantly improving something existing, you can get a team to rally behind that, you can get passionate about it, you can get excited about it, and that makes it a lot easier to ask a lot of folks. That's part of it. You know, I think also focusing on macroeconomics kind of important, right? I mean, so with Auth0, I mean, we over the last five to 10 years have seen the world of the developer, the app builder, the app owner. You're saying market tailwinds. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can't always have that, but that's certainly, you know, helpful. And then the last thing for me is for my colleagues, can I find colleagues that are comfortable saying, I'm sorry, or colleagues that are comfortable laughing at themselves? Because if you are successful and you grow fast, there will be days, weeks, months when you drown. And knowing that there is empathy, forgiveness, understanding as a core value of the company allows folks to just be free and work and not worry about covering their asses, playing politics or not taking chances. And so those are some of the things that I've been fortunate enough to find. Yeah, no, it's super good. And even taking that a step further, you do not have a security background. I don't. If I'm you and I'm looking at this company and there's 500K of revenue, and obviously Bessemer's name is attached to it, which is great because that's a good filter for picking the right stocks, if you will. But the challenge with picking in the private market is that there's an extremely limited set of data available to you. And so you don't get access to the cap table. You don't get access to the board updates. You don't get access to really anything. You just get access to a set of interviews, which might be one to four hours in total. And you got to make a decision based on your gut. That is also in addition to, you probably don't know the technology that well, i.e. in the sense that, is this something that customers care about? So I've had guests previously say, I have my guy or gal, and he or she comes in and she you know, downloads the software or uploads it or whatever and runs it and says, this is the real deal. Customers mm-hmm. are going to want this. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything like that or other tools in your tool belt where when something is so far away from your domain or core expertise, yeah. how do you- Like picking a stock, right? Yeah. How do you yes. pick a pharma stock when, you know, I, I don't, yeah. 
And at least with pharma stocks, there's data. At least if you don't know anything about pharma, you could right. look at data. Yeah. Right. Good observation. Look, it's funny the number of times I've talked to early stage companies for different reasons, but often, you know, trying to figure out if there's a good fit for me to work there. And I ask the simplest question of who's your target market? Who's your target buyer? To what is the pain you solve for them? What is the pain? And what is their world like without you? And it's funny how often it will take them 10 to 15 minutes to answer that question. It takes 10 to 15 minutes to answer the question. It's probably a problem or worse. If you ask three different executives and you get three different answers, also a problem, right? And so that's, you'll see a lot of, you know, in early stage companies, cool technology without a marketplace where there hasn't been a proper product overlay function applied to what to do with technology that might admittedly be super cool, but may or may not have a place yet. And so just very crisply understanding what's the pain it solves, how does it solve it? Who does it solve it for? And then if you're able to talk to one or two customers and have them tell you the exact same thing, two or three execs tell you the same thing, a board member tells you the same thing, that sounds pretty rudimentary. And yet it's shocking how often folks, especially when founders are technologists, sometimes you have go-to-market founders that they're focused on the go-to-market piece, but very often your founders, your early stage are, are about the code, right? And it's, isn't the code beautiful? You know, isn't the code lovely? Why don't the salespeople understand how to sell it? Why doesn't marketing understand how to message it? Why is there all the user error? The customers don't get it. Sometimes we fall in love with the technology and that obscures the fact that we don't quite know what to do with it. Yeah. That's kind of the first litmus test for me. And it's surprising less than 20% of the, I would say, of the folks were asked that kind of crisp question have given me clean, quick answers. Interesting. Okay. So you had mentioned like you're a startup guy through and through, and that is a just a special type of person. And there has to be a little bit of crazy in us to continue to do this because it's objectively on paper. It's a very, very risky decision. And so your risk tolerance has to be really high. The reality of it is most people don't know this, but first time you continue to go into not only startups, but you're the first guy in these startups on the revenue side. So at, at Auth0, you're the first sales leader, the first CRO. Right. Statistics show that 70 to 80% of first time VP of sales don't make it to 12 months. Right. Man, I just am trying to wrap my head around what gives you the confidence that you won't be a part of that statistic? Or maybe put a different way, what in you is driving you to prove that statistic wrong? Yeah, because it's true, right? And I don't think it's just in sales, right? You typically in an early stage company, you know, your first marketing leader is probably not going to be the marketing leader you have at 50 million. You know, your first engineering leader is probably a founder. He or she may not be your CTO once you're 200 million. Like usually you've got the right leader for the right stage. And it's pretty uncommon to see the same leader kind of come through from dollar one to dollar a hundred million. I think it's just because you've got different skills that are required, right? That first five million in revenue, you're trying to prove a concept, right? You're trying to validate that there's a there there. And so you may not be focused on revenue. You may be focused on trying to land a couple of proof point customers to get you that series A or series B or show that it's an offering that can go up market. And so you need to be, I think, much more focused and it's hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? You're holding a saber, you're leading the troops in the field. From 10 to 30, it becomes more about scale, right? And so all the employees that were there because you know they were the founder's buddies in college, but we don't have the experience, you're trying to now start to up-level that and drive more scale expansion, things like that, where by the time you're 100 million, 
you know, the people component and building and getting scale out of large teams, looking for force multipliers, driving, you know, uh, higher margins by getting efficiencies. Again, totally different. So I guess I'm agreeing with you that, yeah, a bit of psychosis to think that you could do all three of those things. I've been able to do it. I mean, I've done that here. I've done that at a couple companies, but I, w- I wouldn't say it's been easy. I would say the first couple stages come more naturally to me. I'm very much the have no problem running through a wall, have no problem taking the hill. You know, all those grit and force early stage stuff is comfortable. The stuff that's harder for me has been historically, hey, you've got a team. They just hit a number. Maybe send some congratulatory notes around. Maybe hold a meeting and celebrate. Maybe stop, smell roses. Those things that, you know, when you're 100 million in revenue, inspirational leadership, change management, those kinds of things become really, really important. And I've been much more of a, we've got to take that hill, follow me, let's go. Mm-hmm. I think that has been a struggle for me to stop. Again, things like this are a great example. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, but you are. Different phases definitely require strengths in different areas. And if you're not able to flex kind of who you are or your style, then you'll typically find yourself you know, being drawn to one stage and staying there for most of your career, which I think is also fine. Agreed. And I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that what I was alluding to is that typically people can't do zero to 100. And so what that ends up happening is you are bucketed as the zero to 10 gal or, you know, 10 to 50 guy or 50 to 100 woman, whatever, right? And so you become, even from the board or the venture community or your CEO's eyes, you are that person, which I find a little ironic because the CEO is the CEO, you know, and the CEO goes from zero to they are the founder and that's the lifeblood. But and I can't speak for other functional areas, but sales is very typically, you are this defined thing. And so it's just rare. So when you came in at 800K, who else was there in the sales organization? It was me and three salespeople. And how many people report to you now? Or I guess are in the sales organization? Yeah, I mean, across my overall org now, it's about 400 people. Includes marketing and post sales. And so marketing's also within your purview. Yeah. So I have sales, marketing, and then customer success. And so that's our overall revenue organization. So if you're involved in landing, in procuring customers, or taking care of customers, that's part of our org. Yeah. And you said, I think I'm really good at the early stuff. Do you think that's just because that's where your enthusiasm lies? That's where you really enjoy it? And maybe that's an unfair question. No, no, it's a fair question. And what I think I'm good at, not everybody always agrees with how you grade yourself in certain areas, right? I think there'll be folks that would say I'm too hard on myself in in other areas and give myself too much credit in some too, you know, but but I think I've naturally gravitated to the early stage because I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie and need that kind of stress to not get bored. But, you know, frankly, at the size we are now, there's plenty of stress and plenty of other things too. (laughs) The thought that I had as you were talking was this role of CRO didn't exist probably even five, six years ago. Yeah. And it's starting to evolve. Even hearing you articulate what that role is, everything revenue generating. And in this case, that includes marketing. What advantages or levers can you pull by also having marketing under your purview as the CRO? I think it's just that we're seeing lines blur sales today compared to when I started selling 
20 years ago, you know, the lines between sales and marketing or sales and customer success are are starting to blend, right? So whereas 20 years ago, attribution on a lead was pretty straightforward. I kicked down this door, called, 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 got an appointment, put an opportunity in the pipeline. Now as a business, if we decide, look, we really want to get business with JP Morgan Chase, you'll have a marketing initiative going after JP Morgan Chase, you'll have direct salespeople going after them, and you'll have ADRs or SDRs working in concert. And so when you finally break through, attribution of what the thing was that actually got you there gets harder, but who cares? You're there, right? And so if you have all those pieces working together, you know, you're more likely to be successful. You know, also there's plenty of research out there, particularly in SaaS, that shows that chances are a potential buyers finish 70% of their diligence before you've ever talked with them. So you better make sure working with your marketing teams that the diligence they're doing lends itself well to high conversion. Otherwise, if you're siloed, you're going to have conversion problems. And then post-sales with SaaS, one of the biggest levers you can pull in terms of a revenue multiplier is high retention rates, high expansion rates. Well, that's about your post-sales motion. And so all these things now are really working in concert, particularly in SaaS. It doesn't make sense to have them firewalled. And so what we found is looking holistically across how we engage with somebody from the first time they hear about us to, you know, their third renewal. If we look at that holistically, how they interact with the technology, what the messaging looks like, what the relationships are that they have with us, we can just optimize much better than if they were siloed. And organizationally, how do you operationalize having all of those things under one umbrella? And so specifically, Walk me through that. Do you have a VP of sales as well as a VP of marketing as well as a VP of customer success? What does that look like? Sure. So we have two sales leaders, one that's responsible for the Americas and one that's responsible for international. And again, international, you know, EMEA, APAC, almost half our business. We have a chief customer officer that's responsible for our entire post-sales motion. So that's support, that's technical account management, that's professional services. And we have a global SVP of marketing as well. And then obviously some operational roles as well. So we have functional leaders. And at the moment, sales, half international, half domestic. That's working pretty well for us. In terms of outcomes and success criteria, do the functional leaders have the same sets of what success means? Yeah, I think you've seen that in the past too. So for example, my sales leaders and their sales leaders, they have an all up number. So if they sign a bad deal, they exaggerate our capabilities a bit, or they, you know, just forest for the trees, they just sign a deal that's not a great fit. When that customer churns, that will hit their number. And so you don't have these situations of sales sells a deal, throws it over the wall to customer success, and a big mess lands with customer success. So you've got the teams integrated from an org chart perspective, and then you also have them integrated from a comp plan perspective, where they've got, to your point, consistent goals consistent KPIs. And then marketing is tied to some of those same, for the most part, those same KPIs as well to support the business. And is there a consistent thread around that comes back to your number or the company revenue target? Is there some measurement that you hold each of those functional leaders accountable to that ties back to the company number? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Depends on how detailed you want to go, right? But, you know, not everybody, you've got folks in marketing or folks in in customer success or folks in professional services, you know, folks that necessarily aren't giving quotas, but we know what KPIs we need in different functional areas to hit our revenue requirements. 
And the benefit of doing that right is everyone feels like they're rowing the same direction. They understand what their contribution means to the broader organization. When is it broken? I think I spend a little too much time talking about the world through rose-colored lenses because yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty, and obviously I get to talk to incredibly successful go-to-market leaders like you, which it's never that perfect. Tell me about some times where maybe specifically this function of having these things together didn't work, or maybe just more broadly speaking, the times when you're running up the hill and you slip and you kind of fall back down a little bit. Yeah. I think the bottom line is if you're at a high-growth company, there's always something broken. And that's how I talked about kind of trying to find peers you can work with that can laugh at themselves or have no problem apologizing because it's not possible to have your house completely in order if you're growing 50, 80, 100% year over year. And so I think you have to recognize that's the downside of growing really quickly, right? Is you don't want to overinvest in any one area when you're not ready. And then by the time you're ready, you're too busy. And so it can be tech debt. It can be operational process debt. It can be workforce debt or management layer where you don't have the right people. It's never going to be perfect ever. And it's an illusion, I think, to think that it will be. The question is, how do you manage that risk? Can you be intellectually honest with yourself about that and have a team where that's the case as well? say even here where this has been quite a rocket ship i think any given quarter if i think of like you know eugenio our ceo his directs will have an offsite every quarter and inevitably some department had just a herculean quarter moved a ton of big rocks had a brilliant brilliant three months of output and that could be sales could be marketing could be engineering could be product but some other group took a bit of a step backward because that's just what's going to happen. You're never going to have everything firing perfectly when you're growing 100% year over year. It's messy. Have you made more mistakes going too fast or too slow? And I know I'm putting you on the spot with every single one of these questions. Boy, that's a great question. So I absolutely make more mistakes going too fast. You know, there are a million personality tests, right? Whether it's Predictive Index or Myers-Briggs or Profile XT, all these things. But on any of them, the one I have been particularly fond of lately is Profile XT. But, you know, it's a scale of 1 to 10, a bunch of characteristics. And if you're a 1 or a 10, you're kind of an anomaly because it's like 0.4% of the population is a 1 or a 10. I'm a 10 on decisiveness and energy. And so I want you to bring me the data. I want to make a call and I want it done. And my problem is if I don't have people on my management team that are at least in the same kind of universe of decisiveness, my team would be like, all right. And then three months later, we're like, yeah, that was a huge mistake. Someone should have told Dave he was smoking something. And so I have to make sure that I'm always surrounded by people that have no problem, one, being a little more patient and a little more introspective than I am. And then two, have the fortitude to you know punch me in the face and be like, no, dude, sit tight. We're not going to do that. And maybe I'll use hiring as a pretty mm -hmm. good tangible example. Yeah. You think more often than not, you, and I'm not picking on you, but I just think it's really important for the audience to hear. Yeah. You were quick to the trigger, hired a bunch of people when sales ops may not have been ready, territories may not have been fully defined, marketing may not have had the leads that were available for these reps to actually be successful. And it's, almost an impossible balance because A, there's no template for it. Nobody grows this quickly. And B, 
You've never done it at this hyper speed. Nobody has. And so this is the art of it a little bit. So yeah, I guess, yeah, maybe around hiring. So actually in hiring is the example. I'm actually, I get grief from my board that I'm too conservative with how many heads I want because we tend to operate, you know, just at high productivity and try to keep kind of sales headcount down a bit. But, you know, in general on hiring as an example, yeah, I think one mistake a lot of folks make, and, I, and I've done this as well, is being so eager to fill a role that I find someone that feels like a kindred spirit. But what I haven't stopped and done a double click into is, look, what are the characteristics of the person? It's great. Their experience lines up. But what really, if I were to build the perfect profile using some methodology, what's the right profile for this role? You know, for example, we know the role is home office, period. All right, well, we want someone that is going to be okay. Like a lot of salespeople are super high in sociability. And if they've never had a home office job, we've had folks wash out because they haven't done the home office thing before. And they underestimated how hard it was for them, given how social they are Mm -hmm. or things like that. And so I, I would say making sure to double click into what the role requires, not functionally, but kind of that personality. I think that's an area where I've historically can go too fast. Absolutely. The other thing that struck me was that you've never lived in the Bay Area. Is that right? That's right. And so I'm not going to make this a discussion around the times that we live in because I have too many of those discussions, unfortunately, these days. But I am curious on your perspective, which coincidentally is timely on, you've always been based in Seattle and all of your jobs have also been based in Seattle. Maybe not all, but you know, K2, I believe was, Redfin was, Auth0 is in the PAC Northwest, right? Mm -hmm. Has that been limiting for you? It hasn't for me, but there's no question. I mean, Seattle is a, you know, a distant, I don't know if it's second or third, you got Boston, New York and others, but you know, certainly nowhere near the number of companies that are high growth companies on the technology side that are in the Bay Area, but Seattle's home. And so it just hasn't been a question. I got a couple of teenage boys that aren't interested in leaving their friends. My wife loves the area. You know, my parents are here. Have you previously been excluded from opportunities or disqualified or not even get your hat in the ring because you're you're not in the Bay Area? Yeah, I think it depends, right? I mean, certainly today as well, times have changed and even over the last five years. But I think what I've seen historically is folks aren't so concerned with where the sales leader is typically, but usually I have sales plus something. And so you've got, if you have sales, marketing and customer success and half the employees of the company are in your org, your CEO probably wants you close. So it kind of depends on the role. But yeah, certainly there have been, you know, like all of us, I think I get calls from recruiters and sometimes they'll say you have to be open to relocate, sometimes not. But for me, it's just kind of been a non-starter. I just haven't ever had any intention of moving and haven't needed to, to find opportunities that have been great. I guess you're typically picking the ones in Seattle. Why? Because I imagine like at this point, you could get jobs as the CRO in the Bay Area, but you could kind of tend to pick the ones that are in Seattle. Do you like being close to that center of gravity? Do you think it gives you an advantage? It's been 20 years. And so the answer to that 20 years ago, I think would have been very different than it is today with Zoom and Slack and all the collaboration tools now. I mean, I think something like 60% of Auth0's employees don't live within 100 miles of one of our kind of centers of gravity. We've got, you know, hubs in London and Sydney and Buenos Aires, Seattle and San Francisco, but a lot of our employees are purely remote. So it's just a very different world today. But yeah, I think it just kind of depends. You know, I've had a couple roles 
where I lived in Seattle, but my boss was in Boston or in the Bay Area. And and there was a fair amount of, you know, travel back to home office and other times where they didn't care. I think it just depends. It just kind of worked itself out that way. But again, fortunately, Seattle's got enough great stuff going on where there's certainly plenty to choose from here. Well, man, I'll tell you, it's worked out great for you. And I really appreciate your time. I'm going to wrap with a couple of the same questions that I typically ask. The first is, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Grit is the ability to do that, which is difficult to do that, which not everyone else is capable of doing. And so four years ago, grit was the willingness to go out and challenge the status quo and find those first couple dozen customers. Grit today is letting go of a lot of the things that we used to get where we are and to embrace things that will help us go from you know nine figures of revenue to 10 figures. But yeah, I think it's the fortitude to do that, which is difficult and the internal motivation that allows you to do it. I think that's different for everybody, right? We all have our reasons for doing what we do, but that's how I think about it. Awesome. If someone wants to get a hold of you, wants to help you and Auth0 build the next $2 billion of value within the company, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, LinkedIn is great or just first.last at auth0.com. Thanks for your time, Dave. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at JubinMir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.